invite you at this time to turn in the scripture to Acts chapter 25. Acts chapter 25. We're working our way through this historical record of the planting, the founding, the creation of the church. This period going forward into our day to day known as the church age. And so this is otherwise known as uh, Luke part two. Our human author is, of course, Luke, the physician, the companion of the Apostle Paul. And we've been with the Apostle Paul, Paul for some time now, from chapter 13 roughly going forward to the end of Acts. And we've got a few more chapters. Right now, we're right about in the middle of his six defenses that he's making, starting in chapter 21, when he became a prisoner of whom? Careful. Of the Lord, right? That's how he designates himself. He doesn't say Paul, as he writes in his epistle, a prisoner of the Roman army. He says, Paul, a prisoner of whom? of the Lord, of Jesus Christ. And that's the way he views it. He understands uh, sovereignty, perhaps better than some of us. He's trusting in that, and that's what's gotten him through so far in all of these trials, six defenses, and his making the fourth now in this second part of Paul's appeal to Caesar. He makes his appeal to the second governor now. He had been with, stood before Governor Felix, before him in chapter 24, and now It's turned over to Governor Festus. Some two years later, he spent two years under house arrest there at the palace in Caesarea, which is the headquarters for uh, the Roman governor of the Judean province. And so it's two years later now since that first attempt on his life, if you remember, that the actually the nephew of Paul became privy to we don't know how but he did that they there were some 40 jews that taken a vow that before they would eat or drink again they were going to kill the apostle paul he came and he told paul and paul told the uh, centurion and the centurion uh, brought the young man to uh, claudius lysias the tribune who unfolded the plan to him and then of course paul was whisked away with 470 soldiers And he was taken from there some 60 miles to Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast. So he was confronted by the Jews who had brought down their lawyer named Tertullus in chapter 24, who leveled charges against Paul, all of them false, of course. But we've seen him go through a number of trials so far. He's seen them nearly killed by a mob, The Sanhedrin themselves who were called informally to the Antonia Fortress so that Lysias could figure out what in the world the truth is about this man. He can't get to the bottom. And in the Roman jurisprudence, you couldn't just lock somebody up without a charge. There had to be a legitimate charge with witnesses and so on. So there's the conundrum. The Roman government, they're trying to abide by their laws. That's how they keep the peace, the Pax Romana. And they don't have legitimate charges that are actually bolstered or undergirded by any kind of eyewitness testimony. It's all hearsay, really. So here he is now standing before Festus. We'll read again verse 1 through verse 12. Let's read together. Chapter 25 of Acts. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. 
And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because there were because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them, not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before, before me? And Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer, and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death, but if there is nothing to the, their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed. To Caesar you shall go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this testimony. We thank you for this legacy of the Apostle Paul as the Spirit, Lord, surely is sustaining him as he now, after spending his time post-conversion, Lord, representing you, speaking truth on behalf of him who is the truth, bearing witness to the truth and to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with faithfulness at risk of his own life or incarceration. And so, Lord, we see many trials and defenses made going before several now in the Sanhedrin and among the Roman officials and so on. And we wonder, O oh Lord, why it is that we've been given such a repetitive lengthy record, but then it occurs to us that in many times, in many ways, a defense must be made. And Paul masterfully, as you've directed him, as you've called him, as you've inclined his heart, has given, given testimony to those people that he speaks to, adjusting it in ways that he believed would most be effective for them. And we see that, which is wise. It's a wise strategy, Lord. And so we see all of this is given to us as a matter of, of eternal record. And so help us, Lord, as we go from one defense to the next, making our way to the end of this wonderful historical record, help us to glean all that we can that we might glorify you. For it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. 
So we have learned a lot, as I mentioned last week when we started this particular chapter, chapter 25, we've, we've seen what constitutes and what leads people to riot. We've seen uh, many things that help us understand more about Roman uh, government, about Romans' jurisprudence, about what it is that they're thereafter and what their motivations are for the things that they do and all of these things are helpful. We see that just the diabolical deception of the Jewish Sanhedrin and others. And this is the second time, of course, that there's another plot to kill him as he's traveling between Jerusalem or from Caesarea, in this case, back to Jerusalem, if he would have chosen to do that. He knows that uh, that would be foolish to do that. There's no way he would receive a fair trial in Jerusalem. And so Festus has something of an easy out here. He's got... Paul sort of stuck in a conundrum. If he goes to Jerusalem, he'll surely be found guilty and be put to death. If he goes and appeals to Caesar, he'll probably end up the same way. But what is the most pressing issue on his heart? He must go to Rome. The Lord told him that, not to, get up, not to give up, not to grow weary, you must go to Rome. So he knows he's getting there. And so this is the way that God has chosen providentially for him to get there because providentially this appeal has been made. Of course, he's had to remind the Roman government of his citizenship, his Roman citizenship. And so you cannot pronounce a, any kind of a sentence or punishment to a Roman citizen unless there's legitimate uh, charges and they've been fairly tried. So they made efforts to have fairness in their trials. That's why the Roman uh, government had lasted as long as it did. They made efforts to try to fairly try people, um, not like the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin um, is a deceptive, wicked mess. They killed uh, our Lord, of course, and they want to kill him who represents Christ. And so that's where we find ourselves. So it's what is a stunning observation to me is in all of these trials, in these multiple trials on his journey to Rome, back and forth from Jerusalem to Caesarea, we, the unrighteousness is striking us. It, 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 for a man who is completely innocent of all charges, and these sedition and and sacrilege, of course, and sectarianism, any one of those three charges they're charging him with could bring about the death sentence. And only the Roman government was allowed to uh, uh, afford them the ability to kill someone, to, put, to execute them. So the unrighteousness and the complete absence of justice is striking. We've learned something. We've learned several things, new things as we went, we've gone along. And in the study and spending time grappling with these things and having been doing that all through these trials in my study, this is what struck me this week. The absolute and utter absence of justice. The unrighteousness is rife. No matter where he goes, no matter who he stands before, there's just lie after lie. And last week we talked about the importance of representing the truth because the truth is formidable in its integrity. Lies have to be bolstered 
by more lies. And so they can be broken apart, and eventually they do. Time and truth walk hand in hand. So we stand for the truth. We are truth-speaking people with Paul, and that's what Paul does. That's what he does as a defense. <laughs> simply, doesn't hire a lawyer, doesn't get a Tertullus for himself. He, he, he simply tells the truth. These things are not true. If, if I am being tried by those who are making these accusations, and by the way, it was the Jews from Asia, primarily around Ephesus that are making these charges, he's saying, where are they? You've got this wicked high priest, Ananias, who's here. Sure, and some of his cronies that are with him from the council to make charges, they weren't there. They weren't the one who said, who witnessed these things that were said to have been done. I was there for 12 days. Five of those days were traveling here. I didn't have time. And while I was there, I was taking the four Jews in as per James's recommendation to take them and to show that I am in favor of Judaism. Actually, I represent the purest form of Judaism. Actually, I have the most respect for Judaism because I recognized the Messiah when he came. It took a little while and a little dramatic episode on the way to Damascus, however. He's the Messiah. That is the purest form of Judaism, the completed Jew who recognizes and acknowledges that the Christ with whom we killed is our Messiah. But that, of course, had to happen, didn't it? We understand the rest of that. So actually what Paul faced and is facing every time he's before this Sanhedrin and all of these lies, it's just a cascade of lies issued against him is not justice, but a travesty of justice. This is an outright travesty, and it will be all the way through until he's actually, they run out of paper and ink with accidents in 28, just sort of ends. And then we understand from extra biblical historical documents that Paul was beheaded eventually. We believe that he eventually gets, he's released for a time, maybe gets to Spain. Uh, but anyway, so if we back up a little bit and look at chapter 24, verse 25, when he's talking to Felix with regard to this whole issue of righteousness and justice, it says in verse 25 to he, Paul speaking to Felix, it says that while he was in that house arrest with him, he had all that time with him. What did he focus on? He reasoned about what? Righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. The coming judgment, obviously, is a not-so-veiled reference to pure and right execution of judge justice. That's what the com coming judgment is going to accomplish. Felix was alarmed. He said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And it, when we examine the scriptures and what they have to say about the coming just, judgment, and as we reflect on justice, the justice of God, pure, right judgment, we can understand his alarm, can't we? We can understand why Felix would be alarmed, given his lifestyle, the immoral lifestyle that he was leading. So what I want to look at is 
the danger of the abomination of injustice, because I think there's a lot of parallels for us in our day. And perhaps this would be at least, at the very least, one of the things that would be helpful for us to know what the scriptures have to say, because we see so much injustice now. We need to be aware right up front at how abominable injustice is to God. And we start out in Deuteronomy 32.4, where it defines God this way, referring to him as the rock, capital R. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. So he defines justice. He tells us what justice is. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Another way of saying righteous, absolutely perfectly right in his judgments. So absolute perfect justice takes place every time he judges anything. That's our God. So thus says the sovereign who governs the whole world to the ones that he appoints to govern in the world. We look at Deuteronomy 16, 18 to 20, where they're given instructions. The people that judge in this world, here's their instructions. He's giving it to his people before they go into the promised land. Here's what this should look like. Listen carefully. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes. And they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Verse 20, justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that your, the Lord your God is giving you. The implication there, obviously, is since we have that purpose clause, that you may live, is if you don't abide by these things, you will surely die. This is supposed to define the laws and the judges in Israel. And when we look at what Paul's gone through, we see an absolute travesty of everything that's written here. Right judgment. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality. Don't accept a bribe. This is clear then that there shouldn't be ulterior motives that adjust how you adjudicate any particular issue. Nothing should ever interfere with pure and right justice, should it? Nothing should. No greed, no lust, no power or position. All of these things serve to interfere justice, don't they? Nor personal preference, nor ideology should interfere and serve to subvert right judgment or justice. I think, if I'm not mistaken, some of this is what maybe our laws were supposedly based on. What we're seeing here in our day, is what we're reading happened 2,000 years ago in Paul's day. How is it any different? The usefulness of these repeated testimonies we are inexhaustible, in my view. Why? 
Because fallen man tends to repeat the same sins over and over and over again. There's nothing new under the sun. He has the same tendencies. He has the same lusts and desires. He forms his own ideologies that drive him to do what he does. Whether it's sitting on a bench or sitting next to it as a witness or sitting in a jury box. Malachi 2.17. He's fed up by this time. You have wearied the Lord with your words. He could be speaking to the ones that Paul is standing in front of. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. These are the things God wants. This is what love is. This is what's only fair to allow. This makes sense to us. Or, he writes, by asking, where is the God of justice? Isn't it up to us? Where is he? It's almost like Pilate, isn't it? Where is truth? What's that? A fabrication. It's something you manufacture, isn't it? Something that's expedient. Something that suits your purposes. Chapter 5. The prophet Isaiah issues six woes. Now, folks, understand something. When a verse that speaks for the Lord from his prophet begins with the word woe, somebody's about to get excoriated. So what I want to do is look at the final, in the context of what we're looking at this morning, the final three woes. The fourth woe, in other words, woe to those who pervert the truth. The fifth, in verse 20, the the fifth is woe to those who are, this is my own paraphrase, wise in their own eyes, verse 21. And the sixth woe, in verse 22 and 23, to those who corrupt justice. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Sound familiar? Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. This, these writings were extant at the time of the Sanhedrin that Paul faces, yeah? Wasn't it written for them? Was it not? This is their scriptures. So brazen can the sinful completely set aside what the Word of God says and pervert and subvert what's right and good, what is truly 
just. Proverbs 17.15 puts it very succinctly, but very powerfully. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. They're both an abomination. Exodus 23, more of their scriptures, more of their directives from pre-even going into the land From the Pentateuch, from Moses, the first five books, here we go again. He's giving them clear instruction. Exodus 23, 6 to 8, You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge. (laughs) And do not kill the innocent and righteous. For I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe. For a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. If you've got something else that's motivating you, you stand little chance of receiving justice. You remember Felix. What was Felix looking for? There you go. I'm going to keep you around. You know, verse 25 is... Chapter 24's ending makes it very clear. He he was hoping to get some money out of it. 26, 27, it's his finishing up there. He's looking to curry favor from the Jews. What about all this? What about all of the exhortations? What about all of these commands that we're reading from the book of the law? Something that not just the Pharisees, but also the Sadducees embraced. That's what comprised the Sanhedrin. It was both Pharisees and Sadducees, right? Scribes, elders, they all would have respected. As a matter of fact, ironic. You want something ironic? One of the accusations against Paul is he's against Moses. What's Paul thinking when he's standing there? You're, you're accusing me of being against the Jews and against Moses? Are, are you serious? You sit there and you lie the way you do? These false charges, where are your witnesses? You have none. So he's able to reduce his defense to one verse by the time we get to tw- chapter 25, right? I'm not guilty. I'm not guilty. I'm not guilty. You see, the lie needs much elaboration. Oh, there's a lot of explaining that goes on when, some, when subterfuge is, is afoot. Because lie has to cover, lie has to cover, lie has to cover, lie. So he's standing on the truth, which is always singular and formidable. How about this? Another trial that comes to mind from the New Testament. Just this one clause, just this one statement, shouted out more than once from a crowd, not this man, but Barabbas. This is what Charles Bridges, who wrote his commentary on the Proverbs, is this is a combining the double sin. You're condemning the righteous man, and you're releasing the one who is obviously guilty. 
He says further, Bridges, it was the perfection of injustice. The most aggravated abomination, end quote. These are serious matters. And yet how flagrantly we can dismiss them. Even in our day, right? We see it all the time. Certainly in Paul's. I want you to notice something else from Scripture, though. I want you to know about the reward that there is in right judgment, in, in justice, true justice prevailing. There's joy in it. There's joy in righteous judgment. It's an opportunity for rejoicing. And there's reasons why, as I bring some Scripture to your attention. Proverbs 21.15, when justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous but terror to the evildoer. When righteousness and justice reign, here's the reason God, God is glorified and his love is on display. Did you say love? Yes, I said love. This, this is love that you would do justly that you would love mercy and that you would walk humbly before your God. All of those that I just mentioned being violated over and over. Now it's just a lifestyle of violation. But when righteousness actually happens, when a right decision comes down, Aren't you ready to rejoice? Better wait till it actually comes down, yeah? Because you know what could happen. It's as though the Sanhedrin types are still lingering. They're there. But we pray and we hope because we want to rejoice and not in so far as lives are saved or that justice is done. Yes, that's reason enough. But because we see God glorified. Amen. We see God. We see his love. That's how we can say we see love on the cross. Because perfect justice is satisfied. Glory to God. Psalm 33, 5. Psalm 33 was read for us this morning and verse 5 says, God loves righteousness and justice. You're going to see now the word love coupled together with the idea of righteousness and justice because that is the loving thing. We don't let our culture define it. God loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. That's the context of the verse. He loves us enough not to compromise, not himself to subvert his own justice. Because he is just. But there's an and there from Romans 3. He is just. And what? The justifier of the sinner. 
That's where we rise up and praise the Lord. So you didn't have to do anything sort of under the cover to sneak us through. You didn't have to compromise your law or anything, God. Somehow you brilliantly worked this out. But it cost you your son, which should humble us. But perfect justice has taken place on the cross of Jesus Christ. And by his sacrifice, because of God's grace and our faith in him, his righteousness now belongs to who? Isn't it amazing? To us. See, that's reason for rejoicing. Not so much because we just love what we just benefited from. Yes, that's true. That's enough to rejoice over. But because it glorifies God. It brings glory to God. He smiles in that moment when he sees justice take place because he is just and the justifier of the sinner. Psalm 89, 13 to 14. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love, or the NKJV says mercy and faithfulness, and the NAS there says truth, go before you. Those are his messengers. Who's giving the message of truth in our text? You see? That's how you glorify him. You stand against certain, even potentially violent opposers to the truth. You stand firm. This is your God's throne room. This, as one writer said, are his royal, majestic robes. This, his diadem. This, his scepter. And you stand in his stead and you speak the truth. In what? You see how it's coupled together? Always, always. There's no love in lying. And it's a type of lie to withhold things that are needful for somebody to hear. Why do we do that? We want them to like us. We don't want them to disapprove of us. Maybe we don't want to lose our job. Oh, what's, what's at stake here when we remain reticent, when we withhold something that is needful to support, to bolster, to defend the truth? It's his foundation. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. You could say the habitation. That's where he is. That's where he dwells. That's where his glory is. That's where his throne is. It is his, it's the establishment of his throne is based on righteousness and justice. Spurgeon wrote, they are the basis of the divine government, the sphere within which his sovereignty reigns. On this steadfast love or mercy and faithfulness or truth that go before him, 
Listen to what Spurgeon had to say about they. They are the harbingers and heralds of the Lord. They go before him. His love, his loving kindness, his mercy, and his truth uncompromised go before him to speak, to announce. Whose job is that now? That would be ours. Yeah. They're the harbingers and the heralds of the Lord. He calls these to the front to deal with guilty and changeful men. He makes them in the person of the Lord Jesus to be his ambassadors. And so poor guilty man is enabled to endure the presence of his righteous Lord or you wouldn't endure not a moment in his presence. You'd be vaporized. He's perfectly holy and just. We couldn't stand before him as wicked as we are. Were it not that he shared that garment of righteousness with us, he wrapped us in it by faith in his son, by saying, I believe the truth that Jesus is the Christ. That's what drives Paul. He's unwilling to compromise that even if it means his own life. If love or mercy had not paved the way, Spurgeon goes on, the coming of God to any man must have been swift destruction. End quote. Psalm 98, 8-9, Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Why is there so much joy and rejoicing in righteous judgment? Isaiah 5.16 says, The Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. And the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. When you have subverted justice in your culture, you have robbed him of his glory. And we have no right to expect him to bless such a nation. No right. Actually, his people that are wearing the garment of his son's righteousness and standing in it, at that point we hang our heads when we see the terrible, ongoing injustices in our time the lack of righteousness, the unrighteousness, the, the calling good evil, attacking those who represent that which is good, saying you're evil, or calling evil good. It's not enough that you accept what we're saying is right. We want you to bend the knee to it now. We're done with you saying love the sinner but hate the sin. No, no, no. We want you to worship it. Do you understand that's where we are right now? I want the laws passed to protect the evil. How long will he tarry under those circumstances? How long will he withhold his wrath in such a place? How long? How long would you or I? Such a wicked subversion of justice. It's... It's stunning 
It's staggering. We had better gird ourselves up with the things that he's showing us week to week from his word. Because you'll be called, if you haven't already, you will to make a stand for the truth without compromise. And where will you stand? We know where Paul stands. He's stood there over and over again. In Jerusalem or Caesarea, he'll do the same in Rome. It's the same thing. What is it? It's singlefold. What? The truth. That's it. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. And then in Psalm 96, 10 to 13, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the Lord is established. The world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And when he comes, here's how much that means to him. To be glorified in justice, finally taking place, finally being meted out, the entire creation exalts him. Trees are shouting out. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Justice is served. It's perfect It's perfected in its rightness and in its goodness. Praise the Lord. Back to our text. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that, now watch the contrast, okay? I deliberately set this up where we would spend time seeing what this should look like so that when we return to the text, you can see by juxtaposing these two events, you can see the travesty of justice. It's, it, it jumps off the page now. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. Verse 5, So he said, Let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. Here's the thing. When you've got people that are have other ulterior motives that are driving them. You never really know what the motive is. Why is he doing this? Why is Festus doing this? No, I'm going to go to Caesarea and you can send people down here to level charges. Maybe he knew about this second plot to kill Paul. And and that would weigh heavily on him because Caesar expects his governors to keep the peace, to adjudicate the situations and keep the peace, punish the guilty and set the innocent free. So it's hard to know why he denied their appeal to have him brought up to them. Verse 6, After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he arrived, verse 7, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him And what does it say? Bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. 
Even the human writer, the physician Luke, knew this. Of course he knew this. None of it is true. So it finds its way into the eternal record. They couldn't prove any of it. Many serious charges they could not prove. So the charges are two things, at the very least. They're specious and they're speculative. And that's what happens when somebody's falsely accusing somebody else. They're forced to, since they don't have eyewitnesses to actions, they're driven to speculate about what the person's motives are. This is all Paul's guilty of. They're wicked imaginations that assign some motive to Paul. He doesn't he hates the Jews. Oh, he 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 willfully violated the temple. He he's he stirs up trouble. He's seditious. He's he's causing riots. He's doing this, he's doing that. Well, it, it isn't surprising when you realize that when people are deceptive, uh, there's a lot of projection that goes on. Because they're wicked in their underlying motives, they just assume somebody else is, right? It's projection. And that's what they have to do. Why? Because they don't have witnesses. They don't have any witnesses. And Paul knows that. So what they can't prove through verified actions, through the testimony of others, they create, they fabricate in their minds. So when you're, when you're appointed to adjudicate a situation like that, there's nothing to wrap your hands around. There's nothing to, wrap, there's nothing to grab a hold of. It's, wait a minute, what you're talking about amounts to speculations. Or, or it, it's, I think it's specious. I, in other words, I think it's, it sounds plausible, but it's not based in fact. You don't have any witnesses. You don't have any accounts that you can point to. So glad this doesn't go on in churches. So grateful for that. But here again, we see, and we've talked about this before because Paul mentions it in repeated places, the the immeasurable, the inestimable value of keeping a good conscience, keeping a clear conscience, right? 2 Corinthians 8, verse 21, For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of men. Live an honorable, righteous life. Or Hebrews 13, 18, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience. Desiring to act honorably in all things. Do that and you'll stand before anybody and just speak the truth. They'll have to speculate. They'll have to fabricate. They'll have to drum up some false witnesses. Who did they do that to before Paul? Jesus Christ, right? They brought in liars. Lies upon lies upon lies. Whatever it takes, we must stop this voice. What voice? The voice of truth. It continues to this day. Do what you must do. We refer to it as a cancel culture we're in right now. Do what you have to do to shut them up. Keep them quiet. Science doesn't belong to you. Science belongs to God. 
who are you to say that you have the science to bolster your argument? That's another lie. You don't. You don't. You want us to believe something horrific that a man can be a woman or a woman can be a man. You're turning this world upside down and expecting us not to just keep quiet, but to find it commendable, to vote for it into law. Where does it end? Verse 8, Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law, here's the threefold accusations all untrue, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Notice the brevity of the truth. The succinct nature, just tell the truth. You don't have to embellish. You don't have to go on and on. Just speak the truth. Well, that's hard to do. Why is it hard to do? Because you have to trust somebody other than yourself, right? Who do you have to trust? The sovereign God who puts you in that position to defend him, to defend the honor of the truth. Man is at his noblest when he speaks the truth in love. Because that's what love does. Falsehood, of course, this is simple. The truth is simple. There's a simplicity, a singularness to it, as I said. Falsehood, in order to appear valid, has to stitch lie upon lie, as I mentioned earlier. But this entire case is recognizably false. It's undeniably false. And Festus knew that. You can see that when he talks to Agrippa, verse 18 or so. There's, there's no real charge against this man. What do you, I mean, you know, what, what, what are we going to do? But Festus wishing to do, do the Jews a favor. <laughs> I like how the Lord allows the author, the human author, to include what their motive is for what he's doing. Wishing to do the Jews. Okay, so that's what's driving you. You're the new governor and you're trying to curry favor with the high court of the Jewish land. Said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Now, isn't your mind spinning as to what is he trying to do here? Is he the one that sort of boxed him in a corner to where he'll have to appeal to Caesar? Because guess what? Whether he appeals to Caesar or gets sent to Jerusalem, I'm off the hook. They'll kill him up there. He'll probably be executed over there. Wishing to do the Jews a favor. Herein lies the weakness of deception. Verse 10, but Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I am a Roman citizen, he's saying. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourselves know very well. There's another rendering that I like. This puts it this way, standing before Caesar's tribunal, I am standing where I ought to be judged. Not there. Not with them. 
Festus knew that he was innocent. I mentioned verse 18 and 19. You could glance over to it if you want, where Festus is with Agrippa. He knows he's innocent. Paul knew that Festus knew that he's innocent. He's just standing in that. That's the comfort of speaking the truth. Verse 11, if then, I'm, if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. He knew it was done at that point because he has a right to appeal to Caesar. And so the governor is off the hook. But was this a wise choice? While we can speculate, I think it's plausible to speculate that he knows that he's going to Rome because Jesus himself personally said, you must go to Rome. But have you given any thought to who's Caesar at this time? Nero. Not a nice guy, to put it mildly. He murders Christians. He burns down Rome and blames it on the Christians and gets everybody in the area, all the citizens, to turn against Christians. He hates Christians. They stand in his way. He is particularly wicked. He's a murderer. It's several people in his family murdered to accomplish his desires. A wicked, wicked man. So that's what made me wonder, is this wise? He sees death in either direction, but it doesn't matter to him, see? And if we could get to the point where it doesn't matter to us, because why, should, why doesn't it have to matter to us? Because if you know Christ, what? You're, you're, you're off the hook. You get to leave all of this stuff. You're with the Lord you're in perfection. You're seeing perfect justice standing before you as you bow down and praise him and praise him because there isn't anything offensive within you anymore. It's gone. You know perfect justice yourself as you stand before him in his royal robes. That's why. Verse 12, when, then Festus, when he had conferred with the council probably along the lines of, that's it, boys. He's gone. Comes back to Paul. To Caesar you have appealed. To Caesar you will go. A person who fulfills God's given call to speak the truth and after that, trust God, which is what we're all called to, is then fully prepared to accept the outcome, knowing that God is the one who sent you there. The wicked have no such assurance. So if you stand for the truth before those that God has providentially appointed you to stand before, and you do that because that's what God is calling you to do, then you can be assured in your trusting of God, the God who puts you there. Jesus himself put Paul where he is in each one of these occasions. Wouldn't you be tempted to go, how many more trials do I have to stand before? No, he's that confident. 
if there's three, if there's 30, I'll stand before them all because he will get me to Rome. And so in telling the truth and having our confidence rightly placed in a sovereign God who governs the whole world, including us, then you can have the assurance that where you end up is where he wants you to be. Don't you want that kind of assurance? Especially you folks that have traveled thousands of miles to... Never mind. (laughs) I'm going to end with five characteristics that create Christian confidence in conflicts. You noticed. In the spirit of grand alliteration, there it is. Five characteristics that create Christian confidence in conflicts. I'm trying to out-alliterate my former pastor, MacArthur. First, and these are alliterated for your enjoyment. No, for your mnemonic pleasure. First of all, conviction. We have to be convicted about this issue of speaking the truth in love. You know Ephesians 4.15, right? 1 Peter 1.22 says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. We're keeping clear consciences, we're speaking the truth, and we understand from Scripture where we see them both together, coupled together throughout the Scriptures, that that is love. That's what love does. Second, conduct or conscience. Live rightly before men. So that's the point. You can go look at, it's in your parentheses there, 1 Peter 2, 12 and 15. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. For when God comes back and judges rightly, as he says, you will glorify God because you kept your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. You kept a clear conscience. Verse 15, for this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Third, conformity. This may make some of you nervous. Obey the governing authorities. Yeah, I'm pausing here. Obey the government. Unless they're asking you to do something that's clearly immoral or sinful, unbiblical, wrong, clearly Obey the government. It's pretty clear in Scripture. Chapter 13 of Romans 1 to 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Oh, and by the way, I reminded you who the Caesar was. Yeah. Because maybe I may be tempted otherwise to go, well, you know, I don't have to obey this, this, or that because the, the current administration is... Do you think the current administration could hold a candle to the wickedness of Nero? Not a chance. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. 
Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. There it is again. For because of this, you also pay your taxes. That's why I see so many happy faces out there. Oh, I love paying my taxes. (laughs) For the authorities are ministers. You know, I've talked to Christians who don't pay their taxes and they're all vehement about it and they find 90 ways of Sunday to leveraging this and re-explaining it like other people that too that want to justify opposing it. And it's like, oh, okay. True story. Actually, we lived in Southern California at the time. And I said... uh, So you expect the rest of us to pay for the infrastructure, for government, for police forces, firemen. Because you've you've stood in judgment and said that because of this, this, and that, we're not paying our taxes. So you're making the rest of us pay. Okay. For because of this you pay your taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes, to whom taxes are owed. Revenue, to whom revenue is owed. Respect, to whom respect is owed. Honor, to whom honor is owed. Um, Titus 3 and verse 1. He even lets his protege, his pastor, Know this, Titus. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities and to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. He calls that a good work. You stand out as those who would stand for what's right and good when you submit to the government unless they're calling you to do something that is clearly immoral, clearly sinful and wrong. And you can look at 1 Peter 2 as well. Four, courage or commitment. Entrust yourself entirely to God. As it says in Peter's account there, chapter 2, verse 19 to 23, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We trust him for right judgment. Vengeance is his, 
I will repay, saith the Lord. So, and finally, concurrence. Accept God's decretive will. God's directive will are these commands and so forth in here. These are things that can easily be frustrated when we disobey them. That's his directive will. His decretive will are the things that he say must take place, will take place, because I am sovereign God and I've ordained them to take place. Nobody frustrates that will because it is God who fulfills them. So we submit to him. I know that I've done the things that he's called me to. I've spoken the truth. I keep a clear conscience. I keep my life honorable before men. And yet here I am. Well, see, if you've done all of those things, then you can trust God. Then you can rest in God. That's the whole point. Paul looked to the source for guidance in all of his trials, the sovereign God of all truth and vindication in Psalm 43, 1 to 3, and we're done here this morning. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people, for the deceitful and unjust man deliver me. From the deceitful and unjust man deliver me. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. That full submission, that full surrender for the godly man or woman who is speaking truth and living out that truth in a godly life, keeping a clear conscience, minding their conduct, then and only then can we trust him. And I have this final statement, I believe, in the notes for you. Truth is the divine light that guides us to God's desired location for us in that great truth. We rest. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these, my brothers and sisters, who have come here to worship you. They know, Lord, that when we come together and we exposit your word, when the deeper work of the word is done, it exposes things in our hearts that you love us enough to expose. Because truth revealing things that are inconvenient, uncomfortable, or downright painful are how you define love for us. Because it's needful for us to hear. And so, Lord, I pray. I pray for any here who may not even know you that today is the day that they understand. You've allowed them the ability to understand your word and the importance of justice, perfect justice, which is coming. And there's only one safe place to stand. And that is at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, who reconciles all of our unrighteousness, who offers his perfect garment of righteousness for all of us that we can stand against that day. May we think about these things in meditation now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.